When I win the presidency, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. Lots and lots and lots of time. President and advisor. Harmonious and productive. Close and special. You Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, a podcast devoted to our favorite pop culture from our formative years, roughly 1980 to 2000. In every episode, we take a look at a piece of pop culture from the past, discussing what it meant to us then, and debating whether or not it holds up now. Movies, music, TV, and more. Nothing is safe. This week's episode is all about the 1999 film Election. And I am Seth Pearson, the person most likely to be the least surprised and the most depressed. Oh, I thought that was going somewhere else. (laughs) Uh, I am Chris. I am the podcast host most likely to tear down your posters and let Becky take the blame for it. And I'm Becky, and I'm most likely to shimmy during a presidential debate. (laughs) That is, yes, true. No, it's true. It's true. We just actually watched the second presidential debate of 2016. And Becky was shimmering. I was was shimmying the whole time. Becky was shimmying. She was shimmering. Guys, we've gotten through two bottles of wine, a bunch of whiskey, some beer. An entire pizza. An entire pizza. A basket of deplorables, a birthday (laughs) cake. And the presidential debate. I was telling these other fine folks earlier. I've been following politics very closely since about 2004, and I've never been more depressed about it than at this very second right now. (laughs) I have not been following politics at all my entire life, and I am just as depressed as Seth. And I don't know anything about politics, but I'm depressed. And I thought it was a great idea for us to revisit this film election. Which has nothing to do with anything that's going on in current pop culture today. Oh, but see, but it has everything to do with politics. It absolutely has everything to do with politics and the way that individual people uh, go after power and what they're willing to do to get it. Just to briefly introduce us all to this world, Election is the second film directed by Alexander Payne. From the second script he wrote with his longtime co-writer Jim Taylor, it's an adaptation of a novel by Tom Parada, and it stars Reese Witherspoon as manipulative overachieving high school honor student Tracy Flick. I think you're coloring her in a negative fashion. That doesn't seem fair to me. (laughs) Matthew Broderick as moralistic and egotistical high school history teacher Jim McAllister. Yep, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Chris Klein as polite and sweetly simple jock Paul Metzler. Oh, Paul. And Jessica Campbell as his rebellious and lesbian sister, Tammy Metzler. <laughs> Rebellespian? No. <laughs> Rebellespian? No. Lizbubble? Guys, there's no portmanteau here. <laughs> But we tried. We don't necessarily need portmanteaus for every moment of our podcast. I do. Though they never hurt. Let's learn more about election, shall we? Let's briefly synopsize. Let's forget about the current election and learn about election, parenthesis 1999. A much quainter and safer election. Well, election is um, an MTV Films film. Yes, it is. And that kind of led to a different crisis in the marketing because they didn't know whether to market it toward... Adults who would appreciate the satire of it as uh, the movie's actually kind of geared toward or to teens who saw a high school movie and uh, like 
teen kind of star in Reese Witherspoon and um, would have gone to see it, but maybe wouldn't have actually liked the movie because it was a little over their heads. So that is why it did not do particularly well at the box office. It earned only $14 million on a $25 million budget, which is a crazy, like, high budget, I think. Like, at least by today's standards. Like, you can do an indie... I was really, really surprised by that. You could have shot this movie for, like, a couple million dollars, like, pretty easily. Do you think most of the budget went to Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick then? She she wasn't that big of a star. She wasn't that big of a star. That's the thing. She wasn't established. Then where did the budget go? Omaha, I guess, in those fabulous high school locations. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was a very different, like, time back then. So, I mean, if if it was still produced by a studio, like, they could have just had a lot of studio overhead and stuff that they paid for that way. And they could have just, you know, not been worried about cutting costs. And then that's what draws. And maybe a lot of that money just went to the marketing of the film. Because, again, it's just Alexander Payne's second movie. He wasn't a household filmmaker. He hadn't made Sideways or any of that. So, Well, um, it's that's the production budget. So the actual marketing budget would be on top of the production budget. We're learning a lot here today. You're welcome. So to briefly synopsize the film. Uh, Matthew Broderick's character, Mr. McAllister, is a well-liked and successful teacher at George Washington Carver High, basically an all-white high school in Nebraska. Uh, But Mr. McAllister's marriage is running out of steam just as his wife is desperately trying to get him to conceive her child. Mr. McAllister convenes and oversees the high school student government, and the election for student body president is approaching. Tracy Flick, who had an affair with Mr. McAllister's best friend and got him fired from teaching last year, is the unquestioned frontrunner in this race, and Mr. McAllister decides he cannot let Tracy win. So he recruits Paul Metzler, the uh, kind of all-star quarterback jock of the high school. All-American kind of guy. Who broke his leg. He broke his leg, so he's unable to play sports, and uh, Mr. McAllister thinks of him as a perfect foil for Tracy. Then Mr. McAllister later outright sabotages the election by throwing two votes for Tracy into his garbage can. He gets caught doing this, just as he gets caught trying to cheat on the wife that he no longer loves with the woman who just left his best friend. And Mr. McAllister basically blows his life up entirely in the pursuit of stopping Tracy Flick, a person who will stop at absolutely nothing to win. That's about it. Correct. (laughs) You've summed it up nicely, Seth. Thank you. Let's go briefly into the critical response to the film at the time. I looked at a couple of the sites that kind of cross-reference a lot of reviews of a film, both from contemporaneously with the film's release and from now. And the reviews for Election at the time were pretty uneven. There were very, very mixed reviews. A lot of very prominent critics didn't follow the tone of the film. And I think that's for reasons that we'll get into later that have to deal with the kind of narrative techniques that Alexander Payne used. But they complained about the tone of the film and said that it didn't really add up to much. Chris, what else did you find? I pulled a couple of quotes. So the Washington Post was on the uh, upper side of things and maybe because they're from Washington and they're used to these sorts of shenanigans and elections. But um Dustin Thompson said, The satire of the season, a hilarious razor-sharp indictment of the American dream. Whereas Christopher Brandon of TNT Rough Cut said, Dumb, dumb, dumb. (laughs) Wow. Very witty comment from Christopher Brandon. (laughs) And I think, like, if you're 
talking about this movie, I mean, it's not a dumb movie. Like, there are infinitely dumber movies than this. Like, this is whether or not you like this movie, it's not a dumb movie. It's definitely aiming for something. I would say he was in a bad mood that day that he saw this movie. (laughs) Yep. Probably. One thing that we should maybe mention about this movie is it was released on April 23rd, 1999. Oh, you just said the date and I just, oh, my heart stopped. So that would be uh, three days after the Columbine shootings, um, which obviously were in high school. So one of the reasons this movie did not do very well might be because people weren't in the mood to go see like a high school comedy when the nation was really kind of like exploding from this Um Tragedy, which was one of the major shootings. That's some bad timing right there. Yeah. That is some real bad timing. Wow. That's like Zoolander coming like right after 9-11. Right. But it's even worse because at least that wasn't, well, I guess that kind of was about terrorism. It was about terrorism. It was literally a movie about terrorism. (laughs) It was a comedy about terrorism. And this is a satire about high school the week that Columbine happened. Yeah. I feel like this one is a little bit more pointedly about that. I mean, like Zoolander and... 9-11 9-11 are pretty far apart, but, like, I don't know, just... Th- this movie is just a lot more grounded of a movie, and it takes place in a high school that I think we can mostly recognize as a real high school. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit heightened, but it's not even that heightened. And so to kind of take high school seriously at that and look at, like, pop... I mean, this movie examines jocks being popular and, you know, outcasts and that kind of thing, and that was one of the narratives that emerged from Columbine. Well, and I also think it's very fair to say that uh, as of now, it's critically seen as really the emergence of Alexander Payne as a major film director and screenwriter. Um, I think it was the kind of resurgence of Matthew Broderick's career. And I also think that it rightly established Reese Witherspoon as a an incredibly competent leading actress. Yeah, like yes. a real actress, because before this she was in... She was in Fear, Freeway. Freeway. Yeah, she had been in a couple of things. And, like, immediately following this, it was Pleasantville and Cruel Intentions. Neither of which was, like, I mean, they were both, they both have their fans. And Pleasantville especially was, like, had some critical fans. But neither of them was, like, a real showcase for Reese Weatherspoon as an actress. But this really was. I mean, this was, I, I mean, I think this is one of the best, like, female comedic performances of the past 20 years. I agree with you. I think this is Reese Witherspoon's best performance she's ever given, and I do think she's a great actress, so that's saying a lot about this performance in particular, and I think what stands out about it is that it's a true character. I mean, she's played characters before, like, um, in Legally Blonde movies, but there's just something about this that it's subtle, but it's still, like, a very true character. She's just not playing a a regular woman. She's playing somebody very specific. It's a a very similar role to Legally Blonde in a lot of ways. This just has, like, sharper edges, which is better for me. Like, that's more my preference. But they're both... She tends to play really well, like, very driven women, very intelligent women, but who also have kind of, like, this, like... Quirkiness to them. Yeah, goofy kind of, um, like, laughable side to them. And... Like this, this is in a way was like the indie like warm up for Legally Blonde, which I think was probably the movie that really made her like a mainstream like success. Well, but I I also think she pulls off a spirit in this movie that sh- her characters in other movies really haven't gone toward, which is that really Tracy Flick is uh, kind of a sociopath. 
very, very literally yeah. so. She's mm-hmm. the type of person who seeks power on such a pure basis that she does not care for literally anyone that she has to trample to get to it. Um, as a character, it's she kind of has this pure, unbridled ambition. And that's the thing that Mr. McAllister sees in her and her complete willingness to do literally anything to succeed. And that's in addition to the fact that her character, Tracy Flick, is also incredibly smart just on her own merits. And so it it was just really interesting because it's it's a movie with a very uniquely powerful female lead. Uh, in a way that I, I don't think other films really even attempt to do now. While I was watching this, I was thinking that she's kind of like an evil predecessor to Leslie Nope on Parks and Recreation because they're both ambitious and smart and blonde. <laughs> but Leslie Nope has always the people's interest at heart, whereas Tracy Flick seems to say she has the people's interest at heart, but she really is trying to just put herself first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, I also, like, she is the most qualified for the job. She does know what she's doing. She is very capable. And I like that the movie doesn't, like, it would have been very easy to make her a caricature, which you could argue that she is in a way, but she's also, like, it's a very interesting thing that she's not a perfect person, that she has this affair in her past, because I don't feel like many stories would have gone that route with her. They would have made her, like, the virgin, you know, uptight, And instead, like, she does have, like, the sexual history that she's not, like, the movie doesn't shame her for it. She doesn't Mm -hmm. shame herself for it. This is a movie about four things. It's about trash. It's about apples. It's about sex. And it's about power. Where did you get those four things from? (laughs) I would like a source. Well, so trash is a motif that kind of repeats throughout this entire movie. There are trash cans all over the place. There are trash collectors. Mr. McAllister is found out in the end mm-hmm. because he drops his leftover food and misses the trash can. The school janitor has it in for him, basically. And the right. school janitor sees later on in the movie mm-hmm. that he's thrown two of the votes away. So it's ultimately trash that does Mr. McAllister in. Okay. Yeah, and there's a scene where she trashes the posters and like is like standing on a trash can. He throws her votes away when she has like all the signatures, not the votes, the, her signature. She like mm-hmm. he throws it in a trash can. So yeah, there's a there's yeah. definitely a trash motif. But yeah, continue uh, with your <laughs> apples, with your crazy point. Apples are a metaphor for sex in the Adam and Eve sense. Sure. Um, Do you mean just when he's talking about apples and oranges? That's that's one of the moments. It it happens at like three or four other major moments in the movie. There is a moment. So Mr. McAllister, Matthew Broderick's character, um, at one point tries to cheat on his wife uh, with the ex-wife of his best friend, um, who was the teacher who got fired from the school. And there's basically a scene where he's talking to his wife about this woman that he's trying to cheat on her with and he's eating an apple during that whole scene and like talking about oh well she's boring but really it's a movie where a young woman uses her wiles because there is a moment at the very beginning of her candidacy for the student body presidency where she sits down with Matthew Broderick with Mr. McAllister and talks about how she wants their relationship together to be very, what is it, Chris? Harmonious and productive, close and special, you and I. 
And I don't think there's any way to read that other than an implication of, if not trying to centralize it in the moment, then at least invoking that because she knows that he knows about that and he knows that. So you think that you're you're saying that Tracy meant to get the first teacher fired and succeeded. And now she is now she's now she's cozying up with Matthew Broderick's character so that she can somehow gain the upper hand there. Whether she intentionally got that other teacher fired, because I think I I believed her when she said she was in love with him. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think she's old enough to understand what love is. Yeah, that's more naivety under- than um Right. Than, but mm-hmm. but I don't think there's another way to read her power dynamic with Matthew Broderick other than seductive or the flip side of that threatening to imply a seduction if she doesn't get her way. But is that Tracy or is that him because he knows about the affair? Well, when it first came out, I saw it at least twice in the theaters. And a thing that I love even more about it now, rewatching it, um, is that nobody in this movie is a villain and nobody in this movie is a hero. Everyone in this movie is a victim in some way. Tracy Flick is a huge victim, both of her naivete and a victim of her upbringing. You only get to see her mother for really just a couple seconds in this movie, but she is the most typical pageant mom Mm -hmm. demanding, really undercutting type of mother figure. And you can immediately tell that Tracy Flick has lived her entire life trying to catch up to this shadow that her mother projected on her. So she's absolutely a victim. Whether or not she's aware of what she does with that or not she's absolutely a victim mr McAllister, matthew broderick's character is definitely not a hero but he is also a victim of kind of his own ego his own sense of justice he decides to try to stop tracy because he thinks that he's the person who's in the position of judge that he can you know be the force for fairness and good in the world And Chris Klein's character may be the only thing approaching a purely good person, but he's most certainly a victim, pretty much... Being used? Being Exactly, being completely used by Mr. McAllister to try to get at Tracy. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you about the no heroes, no villains, uh, which is, you know, kind of what I was saying about Tracy, is that it would have been easy to make her a much clearer-cut villain... Or more of a heroine and, like, a little bit more of, like, a squeaky clean good girl, which I think is the inclination that most writers would go for in that type of character. But I do have to kind of argue with, I don't know, some of the... I I just don't see her as that calculating, like, sexually. Like, I think that she was someone who was kind of victimized by that teacher, you know? We don't know exactly what the history is, but that teacher is pretty gross. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, the way that he talks about Would not her. Bang. One of the things that drew me into seeing this movie in the theater when it came out is hearing that it was a very, like, mature movie and a very, like, intellectually smart movie. Yeah, let's talk about where we were when this movie came out. Yeah, so 1999, I would have been a freshman in high school. Um, and I was just starting to get into the movies that, you know, like Coen Brothers movies and 
maybe first checking out Paul Thomas Anderson, like I really started getting into specifically writer directors who told stories about very complicated characters who told stories where there weren't easy heroes and villains. So like I've been talking about, like I think that was a big thing that drew me to this. And also that I really loved Ferris Bueller's Day Off and like liked Matthew Broderick and wanted to see him in another thing. Becky, did you see Election in the theater? I did. In fact, Election was one of my movies, you know, in quotes. Everybody has their movies. And this was just one of my movies. Like the second I saw it, I don't even know how I saw it in the theater, like what drew me to it. But I remember when I saw it, I was just blown away. I thought it was so funny and so clever. I think um, I would be 16 years old in 1999. And it just, as soon as it was out on VHS. <laughs> I bought it and it was one of those movies I watched like at least once a month. Um, I remember I auditioned for a play with Tammy's monologue, uh, Who Cares About the Stupid Election Anyway? Mm-hmm. I wish I could repeat the whole thing right now, but I did have it memorized for quite a while <laughs> um, because I just loved it. I thought it was so funny. Um, and it was just one of those movies. I just it didn't feel like other movies. I really appreciated the casting of it. Um, it would just felt so real. And I think back then there were a lot of movies that were aimed at teens, like Cruel Intentions. Um, movies like that Varsity were... Blues. Varsity She's Blues. She's all that. Where Yeah, the casting Ten was very... The casting all was the, very, like, adult... Yeah. Like, you know, young adults playing teens. Whereas this actually looked like the people that I went to high school with. Like, and this looks was, like my high school. It's set in such an ordinary-looking place, too. Like, the high school looks like your high school, whereas so many other, like of those movies are shot in like Torrance in California and it's like this very glamorous looking high school. Like this looks like any town USA. The people for the most part are not, you know, that attractive looking. They all look like people that you really could have gotten. Yeah, and with. even like little things like, you know, the the hot neighbor that Matthew Broderick's into, she's really just, you know, she has big teeth and she has like a kind of a quirky smile, but you could totally picture in real life that would be the hot woman on the street. Yeah. Or the or the hot blonde that is uh Tammy's, you know, best friend that goes to date Chris Klein. She just looks like a normal girl, but you know, but if you were casting this in another another way like Cruel Intentions then you would cast Sarah Michelle Gellar you'd cast somebody that's like Hollywood hot versus small town hot I'm not going to argue against hot. casting Sarah Michelle Gellar in any role but yeah you will never you're right. find that would Chris be, arguing against but that's why I think <laughs> that would be a different movie that's why I think it struck a chord with me at the time where it just stood out of the crowd it was just not only the subject matter but just how everything looked that really drew, uh, it drew it to me and, and for me I think there was a formal element of the way that the movie is structured And it obviously was part of the big appeal to me at the time, but I I didn't have the kind of film uh, language and vocabulary to speak to it. One thing that really stood out this time when rewatching it is that there are kind of these very novelistic storytelling techniques that Alexander Payne uses. He really puts you in the point of view of each of these main characters at different points in the movie. There's a, a point when it starts out with Mr. McAllister's point of view. There's Then there, it switches to Tracy Flick's point of view, and she takes over the voiceover. There's a part where it switches to Chris Klein's point of view, and it switches to Paul's voiceover of kind of his inner monologue. And then it even switches to his sister, Tammy, who... Um, you haven't even really met her until like her voiceover starts, basically, isn't mm-hmm. that right? Exactly. And 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 that kind of that abruptness of her entrance also matches where she kind of enters into the narrative because uh this this 
the hot blonde who is Tammy's best friend is a girl that tra- that Tammy is in love with, um, who she rejects. And then that friend of hers uh, starts going out with Chris Klein's character and becomes his campaign manager. So then Tammy, uh, Chris Klein's sister, joins the race as basically the anarchist in the mm-hmm. in the in the nomination in the running, uh, and runs basically on burning the whole student government system down because it's full of cronyism and vindictive backstabbing. And she's not wrong about that. No, you know, Uh, what I think is so interesting, this movie is like a satire about how jaded people are about politics. And that they all like Tammy in this movie because she's cutting through the bullshit and people are sick of the bullshit. And I think that's striking a chord right now in this election for a certain... I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) certain percentage of the population of this country is sick of the bullshit of, of government and politicians. And they just... Even if that candidate is completely unqualified, the fact that they're cutting through bullshit is enough for them to say, yeah, I'm with that. I'm sick of this, too. Well, it's a very natural thing to equate, um, I think, high school with politics because they're both things that have these artificial structures that people get very fed up with. And they they have like this... um, like high school is very famous for having this like caste system where, you know, you have the popular jock at the top of the heap and like usually he has like a girlfriend and then and then like somewhere in there is also like the overachieving girl. You know, she's sort of on the other end of the spectrum, but she's got like the school like under her thumb and it's the system that's very hard to break the rules of. And, and we all get thrust into that system. Politics just as I mean, especially this year, it just feels like a really big like high school drama with like, you know, the overachieving woman and the mm-hmm. bull- the school bully just like sniping at each other and in their own ways and it's I don't know I just think that it was a very natural thing for those things to be kind of equated in this movie well like, but then but my broader point about that was it, it was one of the first times in a movie where the kind of way that the storyteller is structured the way that he was you know telling that story really helped complicate the kind of moral sense of everything because you see when they're, when each of them is doing their own voiceover, how they're kind of shaping the way that they're telling these series of events to make themselves their own heroes and their own stories. And so it was part of this that not only are there no real heroes or villains, but that everyone is a kind of unreliable narrator of their own story as they go along. And it was just really interesting the way that Alexander Payne doesn't really let the audience off the hook in any one moment of this by saying, oh, well, this is the person you can perfectly root for and be happy to do it. Because it's also like Chris Klein is equally completely unsuited to running any kind of student cover. Well, and that very Mm -hmm. much, I think, speaks to this election as well, which is like, yeah, sorry, there's no perfect candidate. Like, right. There's no, there's never going to be a perfect candidate. Some of them sort of have that afterglow now, but it's, it's that's just a fact. It's like you, and that's only the story that we tell ourselves about who those people are. Right. In, exactly. In retrospect. So, Chris, what did you think when you first saw this movie back so in 1999? I, I did not see this movie in theaters, unlike you guys. Um, but I was a big. Uh, I think I've probably even mentioned this before. I was a big Entertainment Weekly reader. And I, Weren't we all? Yes. So, like, I, I was very. Were you in Ewer? In Ewer? Is, is that what you called them? You called yourselves? <laughs> I ewed weekly, yes. <laughs> daily uh, here. Daily Ewer. That's not even daily possible. Ewer. It's a weekly magazine. How, many, how did you get six more issues? I wrote to the editor. Oh. 
So I didn't see it, I think, until it came out on DVD. But um, yeah, I saw it when it came out. And I think I appreciated it because I remember them, like Entertainment Weekly kind of primed me to be like, oh, this is a smart, like, adult movie, kind of as Seth was saying, with, like, adult themes. And so I appreciated the movie, but I'm not sure that, like, it's real satirical bite kind of hit me until I saw it, like, two or three more times. In the time that it came out, I definitely wasn't at all really thoroughly into politics. I'm sure I had, like, a passing familiarity with, you know, the names of people and knew about the Clinton, like, the blowjob scandal, you know, but Mm -hmm. that was about all that I knew. So I really just took it at face value for the movie it was. Yeah, I've never been into politics. I'm still not into politics. <laughs> but I, I mean, but everyone I like this is movie. kind of into politics right now just because, like, there's you literally really no way to avoid it. But I, did you guys know that this um, – the book that this movie is based on was based on the Clinton and Bush um, election? No, I and did not know so that. The, no, I did not. The Tammy character is based on Ross Perot coming in between them and being like the chaotic force between these wow. two. I did not know that. Establishment oh. candidates. Uh, well, is there so was, is one supposed to be the other? Like, is one of them Clinton and one of them Bush? I I didn't see anything on that, and I kind of would say no because and, I just and where think, and is that coming from the author of the book, or is that coming from like cultural commentators relating it to that? That's what Tom Perota said that he was inspired the story for the book. Oh, okay. But I don't I don't think that there's like a one to one um correlation. I mean, you have like the popular jock but he, who is religious, so there's that element there, but She's also religious. Is she? She is. Well, she prays to God. Well, ah, but is that a cynical praying? No. That is but Becky, that is again an example where she will do literally anything for power. She has nothing to do with religion whatsoever and she is not used to praying and she says as much when she stops to do it that one night that one moment in the movie. She is doing it solely for selfish reasons. She literally prays to God to let her win the election. Well, I don't know if that's her only time she's ever prayed in her life, but um, I know that Tammy says she's an atheist, but she's going to Catholic school, so she should practice. I'm just saying that she she seems to present as though she is a religious person. I don't know if she actually is or if she's just talking to God because she thinks she deserves things. She doesn't say anything about God until she prays to God to win. To your point about Tracy is like that I think the real like sexual manipulator is Lisa, the other girlfriend cuz she very clearly like seduces that's the Chris hot, Klein. That's the yeah. small town hot girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she very she does kind of what you were saying. I don't really see evidence that Tracy did that in the movie. I guess, I mean, you can certainly read it that way. You don't have evidence for or against. But I see Tracy is more in that moment where she does approach um, Mr. McAllister. And I feel like she's like kind of like trying it out. She's like, oh, are you kind of like the guy who's going to like come after me again? And she she does use it to an extent to like, I think she's testing the waters to see if he's going to jump on that. And the weird thing about this movie is that like he becomes like sort of sexually fixated on her, but not in a very direct way. Like he never makes a move on it. But like immediately after that is when he starts like dreaming about her. And I have to say, like, one of the most brilliant like filming techniques I've ever seen in the movie is just like Reese Witherspoon's giant mouth over him as he's sleeping is just like the perfect like visual symbolism for how much she's consuming him. I mean, she Literally like the poster is pre- basically her eating him, and that's yes. kind of suggested by that. It's just, like she could, looks like she could just take a bite off of his head, and that's. I mean, I, I love that this movie presents like a young girl with that kind of power. Like she does end up taking this teacher down, and she 
does end up getting away with everything. She lies to people. She becomes president. She gets this power and it just grows onto more power. And I love that, yeah, this movie is all about a woman. And I don't I don't see her quite as negatively as I think Seth does because I have a lot of sympathy for her. And I, I, I think that she is the best president for the school. You know, she... Uh, Chris Klein's character doesn't know what he's going to do. Tammy doesn't care about it at all and just wants to sort of stir the pot. And she actually has goals that she wants to accomplish. They are self-serving goals, but they still will accomplish something. I think this movie is really interesting because I think you can read her positively and negatively. She's no, not sure, yeah. She's not one-sided. She's both things. She is a victim, but she's also powerful. Mm-hmm. And she also right. is the best candidate in this election, but she's also self-serving. And I think right. that's what makes the movie so interesting. And also the fact that... Uh, Mr. McAllister is also a very good teacher who is well-liked, but he also becomes... It's interesting when they're talking about morals and ethics in the beginning because Uh he's trying to school his friend on morals and ethics. And then as the movie goes on, he's doing the complete opposite of what he was teaching his friend. And he becomes fixated on this young girl and trying to take her down and has these sexual fantasies about her. And it's just interesting how he starts off one way and becomes another. And they're just, everybody in this movie has more than one side. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, yeah, I, I don't, my, I don't think my characterization of her was 100% negative because I, I think part of the point that this movie makes is that the search for power in a political sense always requires a degree of narcissism and self-assuredness that always carries ego with it. That's kind of one of the broader political implications that I definitely would not have known about politics enough to understand at the time when I first saw it. But that rings across so truly now. And it's also such a great story about, in exactly the way that Chris is saying, there's that phrase that, like, what you resist persists. And what Mr. McAllister thinks he's all about is looking out for that broader sense of justice, which is why he, like, scolds his friend who had the affair with Tracy, why he, and why he takes on what he sees as this holy mission to ultimately stop her. But he becomes consumed, like you were saying, Becky, by all of the sins that he's railed against this whole time. And even if the broader system is ultimately corrupt as well, he individually completely corrupts himself in the supposed name of trying to rescue it. Yeah, he thinks that he's right. Like, that's his sin, is that he thinks he knows best and he tries to play God. And you can't do that, especially with high schoolers, like, especially as an adult. Like, you cannot control what high schoolers are going to do. And parents will try and teachers will try and you will just fail because high schooler, you know, they're just... They have their own generation by this point, and they, they're a force of nature. They're going to do what they're going to do. I'd well, like to take a moment to just talk about how funny this movie is, <laughs> because we're getting pretty deep into, like, yes, we are. you know, politicalness and all the serious stuff. But, like, the script is so funny. Lines like, fuck me, Mr. M, fuck me. <laughs> just, like, you're so funny oh, still God. today then, that I was laughing well, out loud watching this movie now. It's so, it's so fucking funny. And even, like, what all the language that... McAllister's wife gives him when they're in bed is like the most clinical. What, is, what did she say? Those are what some of the most say? awkward fill, sex scenes. Fill me up. Fill me up, Mr. M. Fill me up. Do it, Mr. McAllister. No, that's no, that's what Tracy says in the isn't dream she, sequence. Isn't I'm she talking about what, what his No, the wife no, says that what first. his wife says is like She says fill me up first, fill but me she up. says it in a Fill me up. <laughs> 
I'm not going to do an impression of her. But... Fill me right up. Impregnate my... <laughs> Impregnate my ovaries. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it is the it is the it's most very unsexy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, some of the, the least sexy. Se- I mean, even from like the way that they like he had like most. I feel like most filmmakers would have just like had like replaced the wife with Reese Witherspoon and had her just be in the scene like saying that you know. But instead, he does this weirdly like. It's very unsexy. Like, the heads are backwards. It's just this, like, floating head that's uh-huh. like, fuck me. It's, like, a very interesting choice that, like, I don't even think I would have made, like, if I were making this movie. Because I would have been like, that's too weird. But it just somehow, like, all those choices and, like, the giant Reese Witherspoon mouth, like, all add. There are so many stylistic things that are mm-hmm. just really weird, but, like, end up adding up. Perfectly. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of the critics just didn't understand at the time. The movie is hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. And not like in a broad sense, but in a very specific character based mm-hmm. sense. But then it also goes just incredibly deep with even just kind of images and even in the context of sex scenes. Like, because, like you're saying, the the giant mouth of Tracy uh, superimposed over him. And then there are also moments during those very clinical sex scenes with his wife where he's superimposing Tracy Flick's face and Tracy Flick's voice enters into his fantasies, even though he's very consciously resisting the notion of anything to do with her. Yeah, I mean, again, like, a more obvious choice would have been, like, oh, he's obsessed with her but just doesn't act on it. But I don't think you get the sense that he's, like, actually attracted to her it's He's just like, that like fucking her in that moment yes. yeah it's yes. a, so that's what, another thing i wanted to bring up is just like the movie's attitude toward women we've talked about it a little bit but and especially like how it's explored through that character because he has significant relationships with tracy and with um his wife and then the 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 lisa. neighbor friend it, yeah mm-hmm. lisa and it's no a, lisa is the hot blonde yes okay. i think it might be linda 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 no, that's, right. that's right yeah so, Linda. yeah, like, what do you guys think about this movie's attitude toward women? Like, is it good, bad, complicated? Like, I don't know. What do you think? It just feels very realistic. It feels complicated because that's what life is. It, no one feels like a stereotype. They just feel like real people that are flawed, have good things, bad things. That's why I like the movie. That's why I think it works is because I guess that's a good thing then. If, yeah. if the, the women in this movie feel like real people. Yeah, like, the the neighbor lady, like, she does kind of flirt with them. Like, she's not, like, completely blameless, but then she also doesn't, you know, take it all the way. And that's, I feel like, a, a very real choice that someone would make, but it's not a very screenwriter kind of choice. Mm-hmm. Like, in, a, in screenplays, you tend to be like, oh, she did, she, like, she either went for it or she resisted it. You don't, there's not that many shades of gray, that, but there are a lot of them in this movie. Yeah, and I and I think exactly as you're saying, Becky, like the fact that Alexander Payne does not allow his female characters to be any more simplistic or less complicated and developed than the male characters is, I think, a testament to the quality of the, the screenwriting and storytelling here. And I think it's also like, it, again, a way that the humor comes in is just the way in which every single character ends up in the end just being a human animal to the extent that like literally once... Mr. McAllister completely self-immolates and blows his life up. Once all of that high school story is over, the last scene in the movie is you cut to 
the taxidermied <laughs> Neanderthal dick <laughs> in, um, yeah, in a history great. museum in New York where, like, Matthew Broderick, Mr. McAllister is reduced to being a docent, like, giving tours at a history museum. He's literally you know, brought back to being a Neanderthal, basically. He's literally, he's brought, because he's been brought down to the level of a caveman in his thinking. And yeah. brought down to thinking with his dick, like, many humans ultimately do. Um, and it's and it's that I think is a political point in and of itself that at the end of the day, we set up all of these tremendously complicated human structures. And we like to tell ourselves that because we've invented democracy that we're so advanced, but in the end, we're ultimately animals as well. And we succumb to the temptation to have dominion and power over each other. Did want to bring up a couple of like pointed, like how this movie is so prescient about this time right now, just that like Tracy feels entitled to the presidency because she's worked so hard and women have to work twice as hard. And she goes up against this guy who it's mentioned that he is like, his dad gave him money and he's like this popular guy. And as nice as Chris Klein's character is in this movie, Paul, he's unqualified for the job. Oh yeah, completely unqualified. And so is Tammy. And like when Tammy gets her signatures, like Reese looks at them and says, oh, it's like, who are these people? They're burnouts. And it was it's exactly like the basket of deplorables line. And exactly. there's just so many like wonderful things in this movie that are like, wow, like, like this movie just like kind of hits it on the head. Like it hits a lot of it. But it, but again, like like we've been saying, like it, it's not um, personified in exactly one person because all of these flaws that all of these characters are universal human flaws and foibles that do come out specifically, you know, filtered through the frame of whatever office people run for and whatever the experiences are that they carry with them. Oh, and uh, Tracy has a sex scandal in her past, which is also... uh, That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I can definitely see Hillary, like, unfold, like, maybe in high school, like, unfolding that table just like Tracy does and, like, (laughs) taping the pen, the tape to her... The pencils to her clipboards or whatever she's doing in that scene, like Did very carefully. Did you guys carefully. notice how flick, when written in capitals, looks like fuck? Yes. That was on purpose. <laughs> That's definitely on purpose. Also on purpose. Um, there is a scene in the film where Tracy uh, notices that her sign, that the tape on her sign keeps coming undone. She stands on a trash can in order to uh, fix the sign back into place. Uh, in the process, she rips most of her sign off, but what's left is the word lick. Mm. Uh, Tracy Flick has to be one of the best characters. It's names the best character ever. names. Yeah. It, yeah. Really, it, it really absolutely is. absolutely is. Like, Alexander Payne has a great history of really solid character names, but that one is, like, one of the all-time greatest. Are you guys a fan of his movies? Because I think he's one of my favorite directors working today. I wouldn't call him... I think this is my favorite one of his movies, so... I am mostly a fan of his. It I, I really like about Schmidt. Um, I also really liked Nebraska. The Descendants kind of didn't work quite as well for me. But yeah, overall, I would like he kind of won me back. I feel like with Nebraska. I love all of his movies, but Nebraska, this and Nebraska in particular, just and Sideways. Um, oh yeah, see, I wasn't as big of a fan of Sideways. Sideways is honestly, strangely enough, 
it's in my top ten favorite movies of all time. Strangely I, enough, I love but it very much. I um, I just love all of his movies, so I, I'm wondering how you guys feel about his work. I, I still in haven't seen The Descendants. Um, I want to I want to rewatch about Schmidt. This actually made me really want to rewatch about Schmidt. I wa- uh, rewatched I, it not that long ago. It holds up really well. It, I liked it yeah. when it first came out, but again, like I know that there are a lot of layers to the drama in it that I just didn't have like real life experiences to mirror with. Um, but I love Sideways. I really love um, Citizen Ruth. I really love that's Citizen Ruth, which is seen, his, yeah. that's his first. I'm surprised. That's his first I know, feature. I love, I love Laura um, Dern. with Laura Dern, and I feel like in many ways that was a dry run for this. Like both being really fucking hilariously funny and really deep and serious. Yeah, at the same Citizen time. Ruth is definitely a satire, like over the top satire. Versus yeah. versus Election feels a abortion. little bit more. So, yes. Yeah, it's oh, it covers the abortion yeah. debate. Okay, it's much more cartoony than this, which feels a little bit more grounded in reality. But it's definitely like a satire. I have to also shout out to this movie is um, I think it's the '90s version of Netflix and Chill when uh, Chris Klein says like she comes over to fucking have a hot tub. My favorite line in the movie: yeah. "Fucking have a hot tub." Fucking yeah. have a hot tub. <laughs> I think that's the Netflix and Chill of the '90s. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. So I would certainly say that we all think election holds up. Oh, I I love it just as much as the first time I saw it. I absolutely I think it's do too. Like I said, I think it I think it's just added more meaning um, the longer that I've lived and the more that I've learned about politics. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's hard not to like maybe imbue it with a little bit more power than it even is supposed to have, just because of this current moment and all the things that I pointed out. But yeah, I mean, that was always in the movie. It's always been a very smart movie. It maybe just took culture almost 20 years to bring these things to the surface that this movie was already doing way back then. So really the only idea for a playtime I had this week was that each of us should come up with our ideas for speeches for podcast class president. <laughs> well, I'd like to take a moment to say that I ran for three things in high school. What What were they? I ran for uh, scribe of drama. Excuse Ooh, me. Ooh, prestigious. <laughs> that was pretty much the lowest position you could get. And I won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I won. Um... Uh, I ran for uh, historian of choir, and I won. <laughs> you ran for a lot of made-up things, didn't you? No, nope. honestly. Um, that means I had to. I was responsible for you know videotaping every concert and making sure that it was in the. Uh, I don't know what you call it. The public domain. <laughs> the public domain. <laughs> that sounds like a, just like they they were like, we don't want to pay anyone to do this. Here, you be the historian. Hey, I had to run against other people. So. And then next year, you were the copywriter of the yearbook? No, then I ran for president <laughs> of choir and I won. I'm pretty sure my speech was all about how you can come to me if you have any problems and I'm going to lead a... Uh, have a presidency of honesty. So and build a wall. <laughs> building no wall. In Mexico, we'll pay for it. I will, Keep the jazz will, club out. <laughs> Keep the jazz club. Build a wall around the auditorium so that the jazz band doesn't yeah. intrude on our practices. You know they smoke their jazz cigarettes. But uh, I only ran for things that I knew I could win. <laughs> like deep down. And I, I haven't been proved wrong yet. So. You're a pragmatic politician. Well, I, I guess we'll that. see if you still have that mojo. Let's hear your speech. I would like to be an amazing president of the podcast for the following reasons. I will lead a leadership that is based on honesty and cookies and wine and whiskey, like all of the wine and whiskey that I brought tonight. So if you want more wine and whiskey, 
possibly cookies in the future. You'll never know unless you vote for me. Wow, future cookies? She no, speaks uh, to my issues. Quote from Henry David Thoreau. P.S. Who cares about this stupid election anyway? Guys, I really wish I still had that memorized. I would have just I would have just said it by heart. Many right now. people have told me that my studio is huge. <laughs> the walls are covered in tremendous foam. The most tremendous. Is this your speech right now? <laughs> I have insulated the studio studio against many foreign noises and sounds. It's really terrible the way that other people have tried to tear me down and running my podcast the way it should be run. So I promise I will build a border that guards against the sounds of traffic from Franklin Avenue. Who's going to pay for it? Seth, can you just add the word pussy a few times in your speech? I will grab Hollywood Boulevard by the pussy. Thank you. And pull it incrementally closer to Franklin Avenue. So your trips here will be a little bit shorter each time you come to record. Oh, that's a good angle. Sad. Gina. Chris. <laughs> well, it's hard to trump that, but... Uh, well, I have a plan. I have a plan to make this podcast great again. <laughs> it's the best plan. Why? Because I know people. I know the best people. You know it. He knows it. We all know it. I know the best people. And... Uh, well, I do know things. Seth, Seth was lying. Everything he said, that was a lie. It, just not nice. Just not oh, nice. Shit. Guys, you do the worst Donald Trump impressions, both of you. I do the very best. <laughs> I've been told by many people. Everyone tells me. Now do it as Christopher Walken. I wasn't doing an impression. I need more cowbell. I was just doing the spirit. The spirit of the man. Who wins? You decide. I don't think anyone wins. <laughs> also, there's no such thing as podcast president. I know, so. yeah. So we all win. But again, but again, none of us is a hero or a villain. What I'm saying is that we're exactly like Alexander Payne, you guys. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus did uh, designate me as podcast president. So I think that that... Oh, did he? I mean, um, oh, oh yeah. go right so ahead. So you now. really can't argue with Jesus, right? Are you pulling a Ben Carson now? <laughs> like, is that? And if anyone disagrees with me, take it up with the Second Amendment. Oh, Dark. oh d- that was a threat. Yep. It was. I mean, it wasn't. I would never say such a thing. You just said I know, it. I never said that. Just what are you talking about? <laughs> okay. Now, I think I think Chris has actually pulled ahead or pulled down. I've dragged us forward. all down into hell. <laughs> yeah. And now it's time yeah. to end the show. <laughs> We've buried the bar here at the When We Were Young podcast. Um, but I think that's about all of the election we have time or energy for. Next episode, we are going to talk about the television series, Seinfeld. Never heard of it. Hope it's good. (laughs) We only have nine seasons to watch before we film it. (laughs) Get ready, you guys. Watch it all. We'll be doing a detailed commentary on every single episode. This will be on your permanent record. But we hope you have enjoyed your time with us. Uh, If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes. Uh, We also encourage you to leave reviews for us on iTunes as that helps tell iTunes that we exist, which helps us make more episodes for you. Which makes us feel that we do exist because we're not always sure if we do. Do we exist? Please tell us, dear listener, do you believe in us? If you also like this show, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. 
You can follow us on Twitter at www.yshow, and you can send us an email at www.yshow at gmail.com with any tips or show suggestions of any pieces of pop culture you think we should take another look at. We will see you in a couple weeks. Thank you so much for listening. I am and will continue to be Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. And I am Becky. Bye. Vote for me. Vote for her.